This is LAC Online Church in Perry, Ohio. We exist to love God and love people. For more information about our church or ministry activities, please visit LakeErieChurch.com. Now here's today's message. Some of you, when you think about your family, you just get nervous. Some of you get angry. Some of you get excited. Some of you have great families. Some of you have less than great families. And I, and I want to show you something in the scripture today that I think God wants to say to every one of us. We're, we're going to be talking about over the next number of weeks, and there will be some, some uh, weeks in between that we will have other things going on, Mother's Day, Father's Day, those kind of things. But uh, we're going to be talking over a series of weeks about this idea that God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and it's not a secret. But in fact, the Bible has a lot to say about what God wants for your life and the plans that God has for your life. I, I realize that a lot of us have become cynical as we've gotten older because there have been all of these people at various times who, who supposedly knew the plan for our life or or wrote a book about five ways to get your life straightened out, or, or figure out your purpose, or, or come to your true north. But really, I want to remind you that God's Word really does have the answers to the biggest questions in your life. And when you look at God's Word, then what you discover is that God, from the very beginning, wanted you to know what His purpose is and what His plans are. And for our journey, we're going to look at a man that the Bible talks a lot about. In fact, God wanted you to notice this man. I'll, I'll explain why in just a moment. So when you think about the book of Genesis, that's the first book of the Bible, there are seven major characters in the book of Genesis. Seven major characters in the book of Genesis. And I have a $10 bill right here for the first person who can raise their hand and tell me who those seven characters are. Come on. Seven major characters. Noah. I'll give you the first two. Adam and Eve. Who else? Huh? All right, but they're not the major characters. Okay, Jesus is not in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, Noah. Who else? Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. Joseph. Nobody got the 10. If you'll come back at 1130, though, see, you'll have a, you'll have a front on those people. At 11.30, you'll get the 10. Seven major characters, Adam and Eve. And there are other characters, but these are the major characters. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, there are 50 chapters, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. And yet, interestingly, 14 of the 50 chapters in the book of Genesis are about Joseph. Now, when you think about Abraham and and there's a lot written about Abraham in the Bible, and there's a lot written about uh, some of the other characters, but the most of the book of Genesis 
is about Joseph. And the reason for that, I think, is that God wanted you and I to notice the life of Joseph. And so we're going to do that as we walk down this journey over the next several months, several weeks. We're going to notice the life of Joseph because I think that there's something here that God wants to say to us. So this morning we're going to talk about when your family is the enemy. And there's just one verse of scripture that we're going to read. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 37. That's where it starts. The story of Joseph begins in 37. We're just going to read verse 4. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Genesis 37 verse 4. And his brothers saw that their father loved him, talking about Joseph, more than all of his brothers. So the other brothers, the other brothers, they saw that their father loved Joseph more than all of them. And so they hated him. They hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. And you may be thinking, wow, that's me. I've got somebody in my life that I cannot speak to on friendly terms. Maybe there's something that hurt you. Maybe there's something that happened. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. Maybe there's been an offense. But in reality, you sit, stand here this morning and you realize, or you're watching me online, and you realize that you're, you are at odds with your own family. Well, that story, this story is going to be your story this morning. And I want you to focus with, because I think God wants to do something here. It's a little bit different. It doesn't feel like a traditional Sunday morning, usual Sunday morning, because I think God wants to say something. I think you're here on purpose today. I think you're watching on purpose today because God wants to tell you something that he's been wanting you to know for a long time. Let's bow our heads to pray. My Father, I thank you for what you're about to do in this room. I have a keen sense about your presence and what you are attempting to say to us today. So I pray, Lord, that hope will drip from every word that is spoken today. And I pray for every individual that's hearing me now or that will hear me in days to come. And I pray, Father, that that word will be strong in their heart today. Let a spirit of reconciliation a healing spirit. Feel this atmosphere. Feel the online environments today. For the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you really want to know somebody, you have to start by knowing a little bit about where they came from. Where their family is. Who their family is. And so to figure out what God wants to say to us about Joseph, let's start by looking at his family this morning. His father was a man named Jacob, a twin brother to another man named Esau, who were the children of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, Jacob, we realize early on, learned how to manipulate and maneuver his way through life by watching his mother. It was his mother, Rebecca, that taught him how 
to manipulate people, to get what he wanted out of life. It was his mother that conspired with him to commit a fraud against his own father. And in time, you're going to see that Jacob's own sons will similarly cheat, lie, and deceive because it was the way that their father was and that sin carried over to the children. It's something to keep in mind that, that who you are and how you live and what you believe has a ripple effect that runs through the generations. That, that somehow or another the way that we do and the things that we do with our life doesn't just affect us, but it affects those that are in our house. And it affects them in the years to come. And some of you sitting here this morning, some of you watching me know that all too well, that you still struggle with stuff that has been passed down in your family for years. I remember a young man walking into my office one time and plopping into the desk and saying to me, he said, Preacher, I don't know how to tell you this, but I come from a long line of sin. My daddy and my granddaddy, they were bootleggers and, and I lived in a, in a life of sin and grew up in that. But I made a decision when I became an adult that I would not follow a family path that way. That I would do something different with my life and I'm breaking that chain over my life. Amen. At some point you have to understand that your family does influence the way that you think. Something else to know about Jacob is that Jacob loved a girl named Rachel. That's going to be important for you to know because it's going to influence everything I'm going to tell you about today. In fact, the more that I've studied Joseph and the more that I've written about him and the more that I've prayed about Joseph, I've come to believe what someone else said is that Joseph's family put the funk in dysfunctional. That they started that. And I want you to notice for just a few moments here, I want to unpack for you what I see is the five stress points that will be important for you to understand why this family is so dysfunctional. Here they are. The first one is a forced marriage. Now, what you, what you need to understand about Jacob is that Jacob loved Rachel, but he had two wives. He had Rachel and he had Leah, but he never loved Leah. Now, the way that, that this went down is that he, he fled, his mother sent him to her brother's house. And while he was there, he fell in love with Rachel and he made a deal with Rachel's dad, his uncle, that he would work seven years for the privilege to marry Rachel because he loved her. Well, remarkably, he agreed to that. Seven years, I'll work seven years for the privilege to marry your daughter. But at the end of the seven years, when he gets to where he is now ready to marry Rachel, instead of marrying Rachel, he wakes up beside not me, cross-eyed Leah. Not you, Leah, a different Leah. And so he goes to Laban and says, Laban, what's the deal? He said, well, you know, she's the older sister and I haven't had anybody want to marry her yet. So you have to marry her first, but here's what I'll do. If you marry Leah and then work, just work seven more years, you can marry Rachel. Now, he did it. 
Now let me just stop right here because this is not theological, but I just as a father feel like it's my obligation to say this. Fathers, if you'll set up that kind of arrangement at your house about your daughter, 14 years of hard labor to marry my daughter, it thins out the crowd of boys that want to date her. But after 14 years, he does marry Rachel. The thing I want you to understand is that he doesn't love Leah. He's forced to marry her. And because of that, there's now tension in this house. In fact, you're going to see it because it's the next... It's the next stress point that there is an intense rivalry, intense rivalry between these wives. Leah has children. Rachel's not able to have children. And every time that, that Leah has a child, she will say something like this. Perhaps now my husband will love me. Perhaps now my husband will talk to me. And yet Jacob is all about Rachel. He's not anything about Leah. And there's rivalry. In fact, at one point, Rachel comes to jo Jacob and says, I want children and I I'm dying. I need to have children. She's got all the children. I don't have any children. There's rivalry in the house. The women are highly competitive. And the children are seen as ways to gain favor with the husband. And that favoritism that eventually shows itself and the children that Rachel bears to Jacob is now going to cause an incredible rivalry among the brothers. The preferential treatment that the father gave to one child but didn't give to another is going to create a stress and a strife that's going to mark this family for generations. There's the third one. There's a premature death. The Bible says that Rachel dies unexpectedly premature she died at the point when her second son Benjamin Joseph's only full brother is born now we don't know anything about what happened the Bible doesn't tell and I'm not here in any way to suppose or to to assume that Jacob that Joseph was treated any differently by Leah but there are those of you in the room that know that trying to blend families is hard and it's difficult. And that's the environment where Joseph grows up. His mother has passed. And there's something about losing your mother. And some of us in the room know that. There's nobody that takes the place of mother. And especially if you had a godly mother, a good mother. You, you, you feel the loss of that. Joseph grew up the most of his life without his mother there's a fourth stress point favoritism the Bible said that Joseph held a special place in his father's heart because he was the son of his one true love Rachel so as you begin chapter 37, you learn that what Jacob does is he creates this special relationship for Joseph in a way that separates him from all of the other kids. He has his own coat, a coat of many colors. Now you don't think that's like waving red in front of a bull? Every time his brothers saw that ridiculous coat on him, Every time that they were around him, they knew that they would never have the relationship with their father that Joseph did. And it creates a rivalry. In fact, what the writer says is that the brothers hate Joseph. 
They don't just despise him. They're just not frustrated with him. They hate him. And they don't want anything to do with him. And even to the point that the father held him back from working in the fields, he didn't even have to do chores. While the other brothers are out here slaving and working for the family, Joseph's back at the house playing video games, eating bonbons, and listening to his daddy tell him he's the greatest son of all. There's a fifth stress point. It is the passive fathering that Jacob gave to his kids. There's an interesting story in chapter 38, I think it is, as you start going through it, that the one daughter, her name was Dinah, Joseph's sister, she's raped by a group of neighboring men. And Jacob doesn't do anything about it. And in fact, his, his sons become so infuriated at their father's passivity that they take it on themselves and go over there and, and, and literally wreak havoc and chaos over there. And Jacob's only response to his sons is, you messed up the potential for a great business deal. That passivity drives the hatred and the feeling that their father doesn't care about what happens to them. Now I want to stop long enough to remind you of a couple things that are very important for you to remember. Number one, there are no guarantees in life with family. We don't choose our parents, they're chosen for us. We grow up in the household that we grow up in. And there's no guarantee there are people who grew up in godly, God-fearing, prayer-filled homes that do not love the Lord. And they go out and they live in a crazy, riotous way with their life. There are some that no matter how much you do, Mom, no matter how much you do, Dad, you cannot win the heart of your own children. Some of you agonize over mistakes that were made, things that you said, stuff that happened. And you wish that you could go back. You wish that you could change things. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There is no security for your family outside of the grace of God. There is no guarantee about family. You just have to do the very best that you can. You also need to remember this. That appearances can be very misleading. I won't call her name, but she is sitting here in the room. One of the precious ladies in our church posted a picture on Facebook a few weeks ago that was delightful. It was so full of joy and laughter. And so that next Sunday morning when she came in, I said, hey, I love that picture of your family. She said, oh my God, I wish you could have been there. She said, just a few seconds before that camera snapped, I was going to break everybody's neck. You ever take a family picture like that? <laughs> you know, sometimes we can get misled and we play the comparison game and we measure ourselves against other families. And we say, well, they must be better parents because of the way their kids turn out. They must have been a better father because of this, that, or the other. And we fail to appreciate sometimes that things can be very misleading. 
You say, did, I, did all this make a difference? Of course it does. Because if you track the lives of Jacob's sons, you find that their lives are filled with acts of murder and incest and all kinds of atrocities. They grew up in a household where they did not get the proper training. And because of that, they went crazy. But what is remarkable what is remarkable about the story of Joseph's family that here's a boy that grows up in this crazy house but he has a heart that is purely after God. He has a passion and he yearns for God and he yearns to know God. And God knew that and God gave this boy a dream and no matter where his life went, in fact we'll see as we go through this, for 13 years his life is a nightmare. Every time you turn around, something bad is happening. Something terrible is taking place. But somehow, Joseph was able to get past the fact that whatever circumstances he grew up in, they could not change God's purpose for his life. They could not alter what God had ordained. He kept his eyes squarely on the prize that God had a glorious plan for his life. And I'm saying to some of you that are sitting here today, I wish it were different. I wish your parents had been different. I wish that your children were different. I wish the environments in which you grew up or lived were different. I cannot explain why some things happen like they do, but I can tell you this, that whatever you grew up in, whatever environment you came up in, it cannot stop God's plan in your life. It cannot stop God's destiny and his purpose for you. If you put your eyes on Jesus and you focus on him, he will bring you to your destiny. Hallelujah to God. So what should we learn from this story this morning? There's four. Here's number one. Don't get distracted by other people. You know, you grow up in a nut house like this. Don't get distracted by it. Don't allow somebody else's story to become your story. You say, well, does God have a plan for me that is separate? Yes, absolutely. No matter where you grew up, no matter what you did, did not do, no matter who loved you or did not love you, God's plan for your life is specific, it's personal, it's private, and it's provable. Don't allow yourself to be distracted by others. So easy to get distracted by the actions and talks of others. What people tell you, what people say. In fact, we prayed today that you would not be distracted by what people say to you. My little, years ago, this little boy walked up to me when I was youth director in Georgia. He came up to the altar and started telling me. He said, I would love to be a Christian like you're talking. But I can't be a Christian like that. I said, why not? He said, because my brother is in prison. I said, well, I'm sorry that your brother's in prison, but why can't you be a Christian? He said, like I told you, my brother is in prison. He sold drugs and he's... He's been a vile person and he's in prison so I, I don't have a shot. I said, why don't you have a shot? He 
said, my mama tells me I'm just like my brother. So he's grown up now with that burden. The words that somebody spoke over his life. But can I tell you about my little friend? He's not like his brother. He is the separate, unique, created entity that God made him to be. And if he chooses to follow after God, it doesn't matter what other people do. The plans that God has for him are greater than the obstacles. I love the way that Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 8. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine or nakedness, peril or sword? He said, in all of these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him that loved us. Notice when he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, power, height, depth, any creature, any creature shall be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? That you are loved by God. You are loved by God whether your daddy loved you or not. You are loved by God. You are loved by God whether your mother treated you right or not. You are loved by God. You are loved by God no matter what happened out there. No matter what harm was done to you. You are loved by God. And that love defines who you are. God loves you. God loves you this morning. You are loved by God. Him in this room. Here's the second one. Don't wait for other people to understand what God is doing in your life. Joseph said to his father and his brothers, I had this dream. And in this dream, I saw the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, and they bowed down to worship me. And his brother's like, You're smoking something. You think we're going to come and bow down and worship you? You think we're going to bow our knee to you? You're out of your ever-loving mind. Guess what? They came and bowed their knee to him. You know why? Because God's bigger. God's bigger. Somebody need to hear me say that. God's bigger. He's bigger. He's bigger than your fears. He's bigger than your worries. He's bigger than your anxieties. You may be sitting here this morning completely stressed out about your family. But God is bigger. God is bigger than the obstacles. God is bigger than the struggles. Don't wait for people to understand what God is doing in your life. His brothers saw him as a younger sibling that they hated and they boasted and they boasted about his supposed superiority over them. Even his father came to him and said, come on, Joseph, seriously, man. You think, you think your mother and I and your brothers are going to bow down? That's exactly what he was saying. He didn't understand it, but he knew what God had shown him. And not everybody in your life is going to understand. When you step out by faith, when you decide to follow Jesus, when you determine that you're going to devote your family to God, when you decide that your house is going to be a house of prayer, don't expect everybody to understand what God is doing in your life. And sometimes you just got to do it by yourself. If you're waiting on the crowd, you may never get there. Here's the third one. 
guard what you allow to define you. Joseph's family did not truly define who Joseph was. Now, I want to be careful because I said something earlier that may have confused you. Joseph grew up in that house, but it did not define who he was for God. You see, sometimes you can be confused that you are defined by the circumstances of your life. And we do it to each other, don't we? We refer to people that way. You know, we say, he's an ex-alcoholic. Or she is this. Or he's that. And those labels sometimes can confuse us because we think that they define who we are. They are not defining who we are. Now, I understand what we're trying to do and I get it and I'm not trying to fight against it but I want to make this a very clear point. The moment, the very moment that you told God you were sorry, you no longer were an alcoholic. You no longer were an abuser. You are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you have work to do? Absolutely. Do you have things you got to fix? Absolutely. But you are not defined by where you've been or what you did. You are defined by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been washed by His blood. You have been made free. That's why when I look around here sometimes and I, you know, I stand over there on that side. Shelly and I stand over there on that side. I got a full view of the room. And I look over at some people and I see them with their hands up in the air. I see tears in their eyes. I see the movement of their body and I realize that there is a freedom that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ that no psychologist and no psychiatric person would ever understand. But in the power of Jesus Christ, we are a new creation. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. We've been made whole because Jesus has forgiven us. Be careful what defines you. Here's the last one. Remember, God is in control of our lives. I've said it a number of different times in a number of different ways recently. But you and I need to get comfortable with the sovereignty of God. Because I'm telling you that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, God is in control. Now God's not forcing you against your will. He's not making you do stuff you don't want to do. But if you love God with all of your heart, here's what the Bible said. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your path. 
You know what I believe that means? I believe that means I meet the right people at the right time because God makes me meet the right people at the right time. I believe it means I'm at Lake Erie Church because that's what God wanted for my life. I believe you're at Lake Erie Church because that's what God wanted for your life. I believe that God ordains our steps. He directs our path. And if we trust in Him, He has complete control. There's one verse of Scripture, and I want Jerome and his team to get ready to sing. Come on, move toward the front. There's one verse of Scripture that I want to leave with you this morning. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31. This is that part of the story when Paul and Silas are in that Philippian jail and there's been an earthquake. And the jailer thinking, thinking that the prisoners have escaped or are about to take his own life. And Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. And he falls before them and he says, what must I do to be saved? And those words right there on the screen is what Paul told him. Believe on the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. And everyone in your household. You talk about a promise. That's not what I said. That's what God's Word says. Can you trust God for His Word to come to reality in your life? Thank you for listening. Lake Erie Church is a multicultural Pentecostal church located in Perry, Ohio, about 30 minutes east of Cleveland. We would love to have you for a visit sometime. For more information or to connect with our team, please visit lakeeriechurch.com.